This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Well, this morning we're going to start uh, a new series. It'll be a, a little bit shorter series. I think it'll be four weeks long. And we're calling this series Anchored. Uh, we're calling it Anchored. But what we're doing is, is reaching back into, getting back into the book of Colossians and finishing out Colossians, particularly chapters three and four. And what we want to do is see how it is that the theology that Paul lays out in chapters one and two primarily Um, revealing who Christ is, what God has done in Christ, how that impacts us and changes us and draws us in and makes us the people of God, how it then flavors and empowers and changes who we are and how we live. The idea here uh, with Anchored is that I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, we are living through a time of intense cultural upheaval. And every day there are new ideas and new communication coming to you, telling you uh, what you should believe and what you should agree with and what your moral compass and value should be. And it's, um, if nothing else, it's a bit exhausting, is it not? I was, last night before I realized the Braves were on, I was watching um, a movie on Netflix called The Trial of the Chicago Nine. The Trial of the Chicago Nine. And it follows, or it might be seven, I don't remember what it is. I think it's nine. Um, but what it, what it is is a, a, a historically um, well-done portrayal of the trial of individual leaders of student groups and bodies that met outside the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968 uh, to protest against the Vietnam War and against Uh, many things that were going on at that time. But there was this scene last night where a couple of guys were watching TV and they were watching things happening and watching uh, people being interviewed and speak. And one of them turns to the other one and says, "Uh, do you have any idea what's going on here? And the other one says, it's been several years since I had any idea what was going on. Some of us have got to be feeling that way, right? I mean, I can say I, I, I feel that way. It's been years since I had any idea of what was actually going on in our culture. Um, one, one tiny example of that, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of our kids, they, they were talking in the kitchen, and one of them said, Dad, do you know what a flurry is? And I said, it sounds like a drink at Dairy Queen. And they said, no, a, a flurry is someone who dresses up like uh, an animal, particularly a, a cat, and, and identifies with and identifies as uh, that animal and goes out like that. And I thought, huh, so interesting, and they, they'd had a, a student at their school that day asking the teacher if they would still be uh, respected and loved, even if they're a flurry. Well, I mean, there's so much in my pre-converted nature that just wants to deal with that nonsense uh, right out of the gate, but I, I will try not to poke fun at mentally unstable people. But I was reading a news article from last year, a school in Missouri that actually had to deal with this because they had this growing group of students who identified as flurries who were showing up to school dressed in head to toe as cats. And one grandmother said supposedly they, uh, they identify with these, these animals and think they are these animals and said uh, they'll go down the hall sometimes and, and hiss at you 
Uh, and if you don't like what they say, they'll scratch you. And I thought, they might, they might spark a piece of my old self, my old nature, were someone to scratch at me in a Halloween animal costume. Um, but this, this is sort of the world we live in. Now, we know. Can I just speak to those in here who uh, are mature mentally? We know that this will collapse in on itself because it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing we've waded into of identifying as whatever we want and defining marriage however we want and recreating God's family structure and everything else, it will collapse. And we need to be prepared as a church to see clearly through the dust of it all and show people both in word and deed a different way a way that reflects Christ. So let's uh, jump in here and look at how we begin to understand living anchored lives through a season of cultural turmoil and upheaval. How do we live transformed lives in this sense? We're gonna look at chapter three, verses one through 17. I won't deal a lot with one through four because I already preached through those. So uh, that's on our website on the podcast if you wanna go back and listen to the last, um, the last message that's in the Colossians series. You can do that through verses one through four. But I do wanna read them, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Let me read the, the passage in its entirety, then I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to look at some realities around living transformed lives. Colossians three, beginning with verse one. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God 
the Father through him. Let's pray. God, we gather in this place to hear from you, to meet with you, to be changed by you. God, may your spirit open up your word to your children this morning, to your glory, and to the glory of the name of your sweet son. Father, empower us to follow you. God, I pray that we would at this time, as we just sang about, lay our fear at your feet. Whatever fears we're wrestling with this morning, God, I pray that we would lift up our insecurities. God, our hopes, our dreams, our wounds, give them to you. Change us this morning. Empower us, God to live transformed lives. I ask it through the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, when you go back and you look at the, the first four verses here, we, we learn something about living transformed lives. And I just want to say this as we start off. I believe most of us really yearn to live and long to live lives transformed by the grace of God. There's a frustration that so many times the, the old self has such a hold on us. But I think too often we try to do it in our own strength, and that is a, uh, a recipe for disaster and failure every single time. One of the things that, that this passage reveals about transformed living right out of the gate is that it results from a new identity. Transformed living results from a new identity. If you haven't been given a new identity by God in Christ through faith, then transformed living simply is not a possibility to you. You don't have the power to do it. You are, Scripture says, a slave to sin. Sin is uh, pictured in Romans and other places as this uh, external, outside, active force that has enslaved you. It's mastered you. You are its subject. But for those of us in Christ who long to live the life God's called us to, we have no hope of doing that apart from a new identity in Christ and every hope and expectation of doing it through a new identity in Christ. Let's look at chapter 3 again with verse 1. Paul starts out here, and you really it's very hard to disconnect. You really can't disconnect chapter 3 from chapter 2 and the deep, beautiful theology of chapter 2. But Paul says, since then, you've been raised with Christ. He's speaking here about our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Beautiful picture of the resurrected new life we have. But I don't want us to misunderstand this. I, I don't want us uh, to understand it in a way that would be far more reflective of, of ancient pagan religions that highly separate uh, creation 
from some kind of spiritual existence where the spiritual existence is good and creation is bad. That is not at all what Paul is saying here when he says to set our hearts and minds on things above, not on earthly things. He's not saying don't think about paying your bills. Don't think about your marriage. Don't think about caring for your kids. Don't think about hygiene, middle schoolers and others. Um, He's not saying that. He's not saying that at all. I want you to think about it this way. Uh, When it comes to Scripture and to Pauline theology, uh, when he says uh, either things on earth or things below, that equals old creation and eventually death. Old creation, old self. Things below, things on earth. When he says things above or things in heaven, think new creation new self. It's not that these are entirely separated. They overlap. It's not so much um, that Paul is speaking to location as he is to dominion. All right? He's saying, set your minds on particularly the things of Christ, the person of Christ, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What he's saying is, you've got a new identity now. And this new identity is what propels you into transformed living. It is the, the source of your power to live a transformed life. You've been given the Spirit. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how uh, when you examine the New Testament closely, the question there is not have you been saved, but do you have the Holy Spirit? All who've been saved, all who've been redeemed, all who've entered into uh, a salvation-centered relationship with God have been given the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit of God that empowers the children of God to understand and live out the Word of God, to the glory of God. He's saying you've got a new identity. Now, look down at verses 9 through 12. He says, don't lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. Here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This uh, taking off of the old self and putting on of the new self, Paul is literally uh, reaching back and he's using baptism language and creation language here in these verses. Um, Often in the early church and in the church for centuries, people didn't have wardrobes filled with clothes. They didn't have closets the size of rooms, right? They had a pair of clothing. They had one set of clothes that they wore and washed. And often, as a gift to new believers that symbolized this new life, the church would provide for them, through the the generous giving of those who were already Christians, a a new set of clothes that would be white. And it wouldn't be that they would just take off an outer garment. Often that was the case. But more than that, they would be given a new set of clothes that they would put on after being baptized, that signified that they stand forgiven. They stand new before God, a renewed creation in Christ. We don't give people white robes to wear after they're baptized, but we do give them T-shirts that they can keep and wear after they're baptized. It's this language of putting something off and putting something on. And I'll I'll tell you, this is really a a matter, I was thinking about it this week of of an orbit change. Before Christ, 
In my life, everything orbits around me. It circles around me. What I want, what's going to help me, what's going to improve me, what's going to raise me up, what's going to make my name great. But in Christ, as we put on the new self, we begin then to orbit around Christ as the creator and sustainer and perfecter of all things, as the one who is in all and of all and over all. There's a legitimate change that takes place. Now, some of you may say, I feel like I put on my new self and somehow it fell off at some point along the way. That is the case, and that is the case in the tenses of the language here, that there is a continual renewing that has to happen. It's as if, if you want to uh, put it in a very practical way, um, it's as if you get up every morning and you get to decide whether you're going to put an old jacket on or a new jacket. You've been gifted the new jacket, but you've got to put it on uh, and wear it. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But Paul is saying that you've been given this new identity, and you're being renewed in knowledge in the image of the creator. And th this is Genesis 1, 26 and 27 language. That following the fall, we've been marred. Our humanity has been marred by sin. One of the things that we know from psychology is that the more that people enter into uh, violence and depravity and sin, the more it affects their own being, their own humanity. They become less and less and less human in a very real sense, less and less and less what God designed human beings to be. And Paul is saying here, you're being renewed in knowledge, not that knowledge is the goal, but the renewal of knowledge is the means by which we are being renewed more and more and more into the image of our creator, into that which we were designed to be. And I'll just tell you, every day, you're going to have to choose your jacket. You're going to have to choose your jacket. It doesn't happen automatically. You don't wake up each morning just naturally holy. You get up, you get in your car. As you get in your car, spirit just jumps on you and transforms you. Let's talk more about that now because not only does transformed living result from a new identity, but it also requires grace-driven effort. It requires grace-driven effort. Let's say a word about that. That's actually a D.A. Carson phrase. Don Carson is a, a New Testament scholar, and he has a, a two-part, two-volume um, devotional uh, called The Love of God. I think it's called The Love of God. You can find it on Amazon or whatever, but it, it really is a, a, a very scriptural-based um, kind of expository-type uh, devotion. But in there, he talks about kind of coined this phrase of grace-driven effort, which means it requires something of us. We have to actively, mentally and emotionally and through habits and practices, seek to follow Christ as disciples of his. That we don't accidentally drift into holiness and transformation. That's not at all how it happens. Look at verses 5 through 14. Paul says, in light of this new identity, and basically throughout chapter 3, Paul is saying, because you are this new person, be this new person. Because this is truly your identity, right? You are a saint, a child of God who still has the, the propensity to sin, but you are no longer identified as a sinner. That's not your identity. So verse 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, 
whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whatever belongs to the old creation, to your old self, to that which is giving way to Christ. Sexual immorality, and then really everything that follows um, exists under this banner of sexual immorality, which would have just been sexual intercourse outside of marriage in Paul's day is how they would have understood this phrase. Paul goes further, though, impurity. Impurity. We've talked about this before, that purity, in the end, is a good thing. We like purity. When you get a bottle of water, you like it if water is all that's in there, right? Nothing else. You get a a can of food or a bag of something from the grocery store, and you look at the ingredients. Wouldn't you just prefer that what it says is in there is actually what's in there? That's what terrifies me a little bit about supplements, And I know some of you are like supplement ninjas, Um, but they're not regulated. So unless you want to pay a a pretty hefty price for those who submit themselves to quality um, third-party regulators, you don't know for sure what's in there. Kind of gives me the willies. But we like purity. Paul says we're called to it. We need to put to death impurity in our lives. Lust, which in a sense is, is impurity in action actively giving ourselves to it, evil desires, evil desires, and greed, the word here really is, is covetousness, covetousness, to covet anything that is not ours, which is funny, the NIV translates it here as greed, and it's interesting the connection that it can have, I think in this uh, context, it clearly is in line with this idea of sexual immorality, coveting uh, someone in a way Um, that dehumanizes them and turns them into some kind of object for your own gratification. But in the normal sense of the word greed, that's exactly what we do uh, with money when we misuse it. We take that which God has said is not ours, it belongs to him, and we use it in ways that it's not designed to be used for purposes it's not to be used for, for our own use instead of the one it belongs to. And he says that this greed, this covetousness, is idolatry, which is the root of all of this. The root of all of my sin and all of your sin ultimately is allowing something to be elevated in our lives to the place of God that does not belong there. It is in a moment saying, yes, I believe this thing is in this moment going to bring me more joy, more satisfaction, more fulfillment, than God is, and I elevate him past what God says, or the saying, or her, and so sin. And he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. Um, N.T. Wright has a, had a great statement about uh, this with regard to how we think about the wrath of God. Because it's different than if you think about the wrath of your dad or your grandpa, or the wrath of a nation, or the wrath of your employer. That's the the danger of this word. Wright says, The wrath of God is not a malicious or capricious anger, but the necessary reaction of true holiness, justice, and goodness to wickedness, exploitation, and evil of every kind. It is the necessary reaction of a God who is good and true and right and just toward everything that is not. 
And Paul says, these kinds of behaviors. And I want to say, uh, believers, we, we know that the, um, the sort of eternal judgment of God has passed over us who are in Christ. It fell on Christ on the cross. He absorbed all of the fullness of the wrath and the judgment of God for sin there. But we kid ourselves if we feel like we can dance with and court and walk hand in hand with patterns of sin in our lives and not pay a significant price. Not pay a significant price. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then verse 7, he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. I love this because this is a picture of transformation. Paul is saying, you used to be this, but now in Christ, you're this. These things used to characterize you, but no more. Now, by the grace of God and the empowerment of the Spirit, your life is more and more being characterized by these things, by the fruit of the Spirit. He goes on in verse 8 and he says, But now you must also rid yourselves, rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, and then anger, just as these, these things flowed out of a sort of the overarching banner of sexual immorality, just a few verses before, what we're about to see flows out of, not, if not controlled by Christ, anger. Now, the difference is sexual immorality is wrong in and of itself, period. Anger is not wrong in and of itself. What Paul's fleshing out here is uncontrolled anger, right? Scripture tells us be, anger, but don't, be angry, but don't sin in it. If we are imaging God, and his justice and his goodness and his love and his character is um, beginning to define who we are, there are going to be things that make us angry, just like there are things that make God angry. And then, because we're human beings and we still wrestle with our fallen nature, with our old self, with things of the old creation, we're going to get angry at things that really shouldn't even make us angry at times. So Paul says, rid yourselves of anger, rage, which is uh, anger unleashed, malice, which um, is the, uh, the willful ill intent in our heart and mind towards someone else, slander, which is giving uh, a verbal um, freedom to that malice, and filthy language from your lips. Now, as Paul talks about this filthy language, he's going further and deeper than your occasional cuss word. He's talking about uh, the kind of of discussion, the kind of language that dehumanizes the one who's speaking it and the one who's receiving it or hearing it, right? And we've been around people like that. I remember being a young man, um, senior year in high school, early in college, working some in the oil field. It was great preparation for being a Marine, right? Because there was cussing and then there was something else. There was like graduate school cussing. There was a, a kind of consistent foulness to certain people that was de dehumanizing to them and was dehumanizing to be around. And this is what Paul is getting at here. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. I love this. We've taken off an old self, we put on an, a new self, but we still have to say, hey, I shouldn't lie to people. <laughs> Lying, bad. Let's not do it. Look down at verse 12. Therefore, so we, we have a negative picture of this new life. 
And now there's a, a positive picture here. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, literally elect, as God's elect Holy and dearly loved. This is this picture, not uh, of us being holy in conduct, though we more and more should be characterized that way, but of you having been set apart by God. You have been called by God to live now and to exist now for his purposes in your life. You've been set apart from the world to him in a very unique way. And, And sometimes we... We struggle with this because you have to figure out how to live this out in your particular space in life, right? With the gifts that God's given you, with the things that you struggle with. But I want to tell you this, no matter how much you fall, no matter how frustrated or disappointed you may get with yourself or where you are in life or what you are or what you aren't, you still, church, are God's elect, his chosen People, holy, set apart by him, and, listen, dearly loved. What is God's posture towards you? It is tender love. And I will tell you this, the tender love of God has fueled more transformation and more conversion than all of our discussions of the anger and the judgment and the wrath of God and hell combined. It is the tender, compassionate is the picture behind this phrase, dearly loved, dearly loved, that describes how God feels about us. And this won't be up on the screen, but I was just thinking, uh, this this is a great picture. Paul fleshes this out a little more in Romans 9 where he quotes Isaiah. Let me read a a couple of verses from Romans chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. Well, let me just say, uh, yeah, 23 through 25. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Part of what's significant here is that it is God's calling love that comes first. And our response and redemptive relationship that comes second. God calls us his children and in doing so calls us into his family. He says, clothe yourselves. Here's this picture again. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You know who I I thought about just in our body? I was thinking about Ron Delaney when I was reading these verses. Ron came to mind. Ron's up here several times a week, whether moving chairs or signing checks or just doing whatever. And, And when I ran across these verses, compassion, kindness, Humility, these words rather, gentleness and patience. God just brought Ron Delaney to mind, and I thank God for Ron. This is what we're called to. Bear with each other. Don't you like that phrase? Isn't it honest? Bear with 
each other. Sharon has to bear with me as her husband a lot. She just bears with me. And we hope that in time, maybe I'm holy and dearly loved in her sight. But this is true of church life. There's a lot, and part of the, oh man, part of what is so frustrating in America is we don't bear with one another when the temperature turns up. We just run. We just go, I'm gonna go somewhere else. I like it better there. That's fine, but you will stay a baby in Christ as you jump from place to place to place, always looking for your thing, always looking for the body of Christ, which is to serve God to instead cater to you. It's infantile and pathetic, and it stunts our growth. It stunts our growth because we're called to bear with one another. What does that mean? It means we're going to annoy one another sometimes. Ever been annoyed? Let's do a show of hands on this one. Have you ever been annoyed by someone else in your own church? I didn't get it out, and Tony's hand went up. Yeah. You hadn't been in church long if you hadn't been annoyed with somebody. But here's the thing. People are annoyed with you, too. That's how it goes. That's why Paul says, you know what? Part of clothing yourselves in the new self is being willing to bear with one another. To say, you know what? He's not yet what Christ is making him. She's not yet what uh, Christ is making her. It doesn't mean you put up with, with bad behavior in church, right? But it does mean that we're all creatures in process. And sometimes we're going to have to bear with one another. Bear with one another. And forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness is the most enjoyable Christian attribute to talk about and the most unpleasant sometimes to practice. Because forgiveness means absorbing what was done as Christ absorbs our sin and choosing in turn to pray for that person to desire goodwill on that person and choosing not to hold a grudge. And sometimes you have to do it over and over and over and over. Some of you this morning, the most important thing you could do this morning is to decide to be obedient in this area in your life and forgive someone that you're holding a serious grudge against right now. Not because they deserve it. Does Paul here say to forgive uh, people around you because they've earned it? No. Maybe in your translation, but not in a good one. No. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Our pattern of forgiveness is Jesus himself, not someone else's change in behavior or someone else's desire to come to us in repentance C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity, if you'll remember, Mere Christianity is that series of lectures that became a, uh, a book that he gave on the BBC during World War II to England in some of its darkest hours. And in Mere Christianity, Lewis said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And then it becomes a bit harder to do. He went on in his own context to say this, and I just found this to be so very helpful. Remember him uh, giving these lectures and discussing this with people in the climate in which he is in the most heated days of World War II. He said, half of you already want to ask me 
I wonder how you'd feel about forgiving the Gestapo, which was the German secret police, if you were a Pole or a Jew. So do I, said Lewis. I wonder very much. Just as when Christianity tells me that I must not deny my religion even to save myself from death by torture, I wonder very much what I should do when it came to the point. I am not trying to tell you in this book what I could do. I can do precious little. I am telling you what Christianity is. I did not invent it. I love that. And there, right in the middle of it, I find forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There is no slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. It is made perfectly clear that if we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. There are no two ways about it. Alistair Begg said that forgiveness uh, is, an indis- is as indispensable to the life and health of the soul as food is for your physical body. Forgiveness is as indispensable to your life and your soul, to your heart, to your being, to your emotional health as food is for your body. Man, I will, I will tell you, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, these almost are the two rails upon which the church moves forward. Because we've all got some, some rough edges. We're all going to disappoint one another at times and in certain ways. Paul says grace-driven effort Grace-driven effort means you're, you're working out the salvation that God has given you, empowered by His gracious Spirit. Verse 14, Paul says, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What empowers compassion? Love. What empowers kindness? Love. What empowers you to be patient with someone when you want to lose it? Love does. What empowers you to to bear with someone when you'd rather just go off on them? Love does. What empowers you to forgive when someone neither deserves it nor has asked for it? Love does. An understanding of God's love for you and his call for you to love other people in the same way that he has loved you. Love binds them all together, holds them all together. Part of the reason uh, the class that we'll start next week in LM Institute is a core class, one of the three core classes, spiritual formation, is because we believe grace-driven effort is central to discipleship. That's why we're spending 11, 12 weeks exploring the practices and the habits that position us to best pursue Christ day in and day out. It's why we're not only going to learn about those, but we're going to try practicing those and and discussing it. How was it integrating this practice into your life this week? Many of you who are signed up will be trying some little aspects of this for the first time. We'll be reading and looking at how men and women throughout the history of the church have sought to follow Jesus seriously with grace-driven effort through spiritual habits and practices that positioned them to be consistently renewed and transformed by God. So transformed living results from a new identity. It requires grace-driven effort. And finally, it reveals the priority of Christ. It reveals the priority of Christ. 
Here's what I mean by that, by revealing the priority of Christ, that when people are looking at your life, the, the way that you're living, the, the transformation that they're seeing, at first it may be odd. I mean, can, have you ever thought about the fact that it's odd that we're in here right now instead of at the lake or at the river or at the beach or at the mountains or just home sleeping? I don't know who would be sleeping at 1130 in the morning. Um, home watching TV or whatever it is you might be doing, gardening. But as people are looking in at a transformed life, what they're seeing is that your life reveals that the central priority of your life is Christ. Is Christ. He's not a priority among priorities. We talked uh, weeks back about how that, that word did not become plural um, until the early 19th century. It was only singular throughout the rest of history. Look at verses 15 through 17. Let the peace, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Some of you this morning, what you need more than anything is to experience the peace of Christ in your hearts. Paul has already talked about, in chapter 1, verse 20, the the peace of God that Christ has achieved, peace with God. Now he's talking about the peace that God gives us, the peace of Christ that rules in your hearts. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. When something rules, it means it does not submit to lesser powers. It means the peace of Christ rules over your anxiety. The peace of Christ rules over your fear. The peace of Christ rules over your hopes and your dreams and your wounds and your sorrows and your doubts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. See, there's an individual and a corporate nature to this. We, as an expression, a local expression of the body of Christ, are to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts as believers, in our collective heart as a church, and be thankful. And be thankful. Let the message, literally the word here of Christ, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Let me just say a quick word here. Here, as in earlier in the letter, Paul pictures the the word of Christ. You could literally almost say the gospel of Christ as an active agent at work in your life, dwelling among you richly. As we teach one another, uh, part of what we're seeing throughout this is there's just, there is just no biblical picture for someone who says, I am a Christian, and you say, what church do you belong to? And they say, I don't go to church. I'm not part of a church. You can't live anything out in the New Testament. You just can't do it. Coming to faith in Christ is, is a personal, individual thing that results in a communal identity. It results in you being added to the people of God. As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. I was thinking practically how weird we could make this uh, if we wanted to take this to an extreme degree where if you wanted to teach or admonish someone, you would just show up and sing to them. That'd be a terrible practice. That would be a church I would feel led to resign from because honestly most of us aren't that good the 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 simple act of us singing in front of them would be an admonishment 
through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, which nobody knows what that means. <laughs> Spiritual songs, songs from the Spirit, Spirit-empowered, Spirit-guided, Christocentric, Christ-centric songs with gratitude in your hearts. With gratitude in your hearts, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. You hear that? Verse 15, be thankful. Verse 16, have gratitude in your hearts. Verse 17, give thanks to God the Father through him. And I don't want you to miss that the emphasis here in verse 17 is not on what you do, but on how you do it. Whatever you do, whatever your job is, whatever your hobbies are, whatever it is that you enjoy doing, whatever your, your status, your, your, your station in life is, whether you're married or single, whether you're younger or older, whether you have kids or you don't, whatever you do, here's how you're to do it. You're to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God, giving thanks to God. I was uh, looking at uh, a, an individual I follow on Instagram, and she had a little video on there. She starts out saying, you, you right where you are, you are extraordinary. So I thought maybe she knew something about myself. I didn't. So I thought I should listen and see if she unpacks this. You're so extraordinary. You have all of the intelligence of nature within you as a human. Grossed me out when she got there. All of the intelligence of nature. And then it went on off into this new age hoopity goop um, about how all, all of the, the godness and the creative power and the intelligence and the, everything that holds the world together exists uh, in me and that makes me extraordinary. But you're saying this to everybody on Instagram. Everyone can't be extraordinary, right? Even in a culture of participation trophies. Some people are extraordinary and some are just ordinary. If not, there would be no need for a word extraordinary. I'm way off here. But um, th these are the cultural waters we swim in where the best attempts to make feel, uh, people feel good basically say, you're awesome. You're so great. Just, just look in your heart. Follow your heart. God tells us that our hearts apart from Christ are exceedingly wicked. And cannot be trusted. I tell you, I'm a little suspicious of my own heart in Christ. I always want to filter it through my mind. Let me ask you to stand this morning. As you think about living transformed lives that allow you to be anchored in a society that seems to, to be uh, progressively losing its mind. I hope you'll remember that the place you start here is with a new identity. That Christ defines you. Not your work, not your race, not your bank account, not your political affiliation. Christ. In just a minute, uh, we're going to respond and reflect on what it means to belong to Christ and to live with grace-driven effort as we worship and sing together. And I invite those of you who are baptized believers, if you so feel led by the Spirit of God to step out at any time while we're singing, make your way to the front or to the back to one of the communion stations.
to take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, move off to the side, spend some time in prayer, receive communion. Part of what we do when we do this week by week is we acknowledge what we just read in God's Word, that we are being renewed in knowledge and in the image of our Creator day by day, week by week, through the sacrificial blood and broken body of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.